So today we're talking to Wilker. Um, hi, Wilker. Hey, hello, Jacek. How are you doing? Good, good. Great to have you here. Um, so we will be talking today about Patom uh, and everything that comes along with it. So I think uh, most of the people are familiar with REST and they know like the, the endpoints, and um, but nevertheless, we will explore them. So if you're not familiar, just stick around. Uh, we'll talk about the REST and we know sort of that the problems of REST are trying to be addressed by GraphQL or the shortages of GraphQL trying to be addressed. Uh, the shortages of REST trying to be addressed by GraphQL. Uh, and yet here we have a library, uh, Patom, that sort of um, doesn't fit into the total GraphQL schema, if you will, uh, because in Clojure we also have Latina, the library from Walmart. I hope I didn't butcher this name. Um, and yet we have, you're working on Patom. So I would just like to maybe try to explore uh, those three different things, the REST, the GraphQL, and the Patom, and then we can talk about why exactly is that you're working on Patom and what are the problems you're trying to solve. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Um, I think Patom has a very uh, distinct way of, of processing information, and I think it would be great for us to have a chat about it. Mm -hmm. So where do we start this journey? How do we, how one understands Patom? So to understand, uh, here I would like to pass like my visions and how I see the world. So everything that I say here, please consider that's mostly my own opinion and not absolute mm -hmm. truths, just the way I see the world. Mm -hmm. And to start that, I think we should talk about the problems with REST. Like what, what bothers me about REST? And I, I've been doing REST for a long time on my career. So some things just got hurt, got you hurt over time. Right. And I mean, when I started using REST was mostly on the times a bit after Rails apps where we have the crude options and stuff. And right. most of the times I had only one client that was my browser app myself. Mm -hmm. And when I design like that, it's fine because uh, when I try to decide what goes into an endpoint, when I create a REST endpoint, I can just look at my UI and whatever is there, that's what I need to provide. Mm -hmm. That starts to change when you have multiple clients. Because if you're creating an endpoint to provide some resource, a product or a user, but you have more than one client and they want different things of it, you can see that the desktop client maybe want 10 properties from the user, but the mobile just want to say the email and maybe a photo. But your endpoint now has to deal with both, or you can create two endpoints, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you start having these multiple clients, mm -hmm. then the thing start gets more confusing. And then and if you have two clients, then you have already this problem of maybe one client's getting too much. And now you have to make decisions about, should I break this endpoint? Should I make, should I make different, completely different endpoints for different clients or different devices? Mm -hmm. And when the number is two, make that, maybe that makes sense. But then you add a tablet or then you add a um, TV uh, box or some sorts. Or even worse is if you open your API to the internet. 
And in that case, you can have no idea about how people are going to use or how much of the data they need. Right. So in this case, what you describe is you have multiple clients. All of them have different needs for the information. And with REST, it's just very hard to address because normally either you create multiple endpoints or you would have one endpoint that sends way too much information for some of the clients and uh, probably enough information for the one that really requires it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for also from the standpoint of the provider for the person that's writing the API, those are mm -hmm. very hard decisions to make. And they are very hard decisions to break as well. Because if you uh, when you need to do maintenance on these endpoints, if you need to add new information, every time you need to add something, you are again in this position. Should I add that to something that exists or should I create mm -hmm. a new one? And if I create right. a new one and I have multiple clients of those, like the number of endpoints you would need to be really efficient in a sense that not wasting data would be just uh, unfeasible to write. Mm -hmm. And we can see this problem in, um, I was playing with the Spotify API just when I was seeking for examples and see that. And I think mm -hmm. the track there is a good example. And I'm not being picky on their, on Spotify API. I, most REST APIs that I see are like that. And this is a well-designed and well-documented one. Mm -hmm. But still, when the guy wrote the endpoint for a Spotify track, he had to make a bunch of decisions about what goes there. And the track from Spotify has about 20 properties. But also, the, they probably noticed uh, for themselves that if they just provide the track, that's not enough. Because every time when you see an embedded for Spotify or something like that, you usually want to see the track title, but you also want the artist name or maybe the album name. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that that's such a common thing that they also included both the album and the artist inside of this endpoint. Mm -hmm. But then album and artists are other entities on themselves. So this is a recursive problem because now it has to decide what about the album should I include here? And what about the artists? And that just keeps aggravating that problem just described about the multiple clients when we consider the related entity. So in the past, I've seen a, um, a presentation from David Nolan and Kovas, and they're talking about demand-driven architecture. And they're talking about uh, more about on this problem, about the REST requests. And some companies, especially uh, Facebook and Netflix, they had too many clients. So this problem was being painful for them and they 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 are trying to figure something out something better something that would work better for their situation and that's where Falcor and GraphQL were born and in this talk let's talk about GraphQL and GraphQL solves a good deal of the problems here GraphQL allows the user to specify exactly what it needs and it also allows the user to even on nested things. So if I if the Spotify API was a GraphQL API, you could you could say stuff like uh, get me this track, and from this track get me just the duration, the title, and the artist. And from the artist, I just want the artist name. Mm -hmm. So you specify the shape of the data you want, 
and you just shoot it at this GraphQL endpoint and then get back whatever you need. So, yeah, exactly. It for those who are not familiar with GraphQL at all, you can imagine that kind of looks like a JSON, but without the values. Imagine a JSON file that's only have keys. That's what GraphQL mm -hmm. kind of looks like. Mm -hmm. And I would say that if uh, for those looking for something stable and stuff like uh, GraphQL has a great community and great tooling, it's backed by a company like Facebook. So. I would say that GraphQL is the safe bet here. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think Patton has has its own distinct way to see and work on this problem. And we'll get there. But before we go further, uh, I think it's worth pointing out a bit on the naming of the things and nomenclature. Because GraphQL is not a technology. In, I mean, GraphQL is not an implementation per se. RefQL is just the specification of the schema and the communication layer. But if you want to use GraphQL as a as a API provider, you have to use some library that implements it. So for GraphQL, you have options like Apollo or Relay. And Python is like Apollo and Relay, but it works on something else still that we didn't mention that's called EQL. EQL stands for Eden Query Language. And this is an analogous to the GraphQL, but instead of being its own language, it's just a way to use Eden, which is just closure. So we don't have to have a different parser to deal with that, just regular closure data structures. So, okay, let's go, let's go to highlight the next, um, the next thing that is a design challenge to me. That's something I was trying to improve on the pattern. And that's what I'm going to call the matrix model word. Okay, and the matrix model word is matrix in the sense of, um, of a table. I have this feeling that we think about our entities and our information as these tables. And it comes from a long history since like SQL databases and probably much before that, mm -hmm. that we define things as like this, oh, if I want a user to my system, okay, I say that I have a user, and then in the user table, I'll create, I'll define the fields. It will have an ID, name, email. Right. And then you have to define what's required and what's optional. I mean, it's an it's a, it's a modeling construct they provide to you to, you are able to say that parts of that are required. Mm -hmm. And that concepts go, it's very widespread. It's on pretty much every SQL database. Uh, GraphQL uses that as well. When we define, when I define a type on GraphQL, I can say which fields are required in the features or not. Uh, Swagger implementations that wrap REST as well. And even on regular like prismatic schema on closure, you can do that as well when you are defining composite types. Um, so you mentioned we have this table where we model our entities and we try to say what is required, what is optional, right? And we get into this some kind of conflict. Yes, and we do that at the entity level. When you say that about the user, you are saying that in every usage of that user, right. that those are the rules. And to me, this concept that we can, we can define... Uh, 
we can define what's required and what's not in a global way is a broken concept. Right. And to me, it's broken because when I see this same entity being used in different contexts, it feels clear that each context has its own needs. For example, <laughs> in the context of logging a user, what should be required? Well, could be just a token, could be a login and a password. Right. Now we get the same user entity and we want to send an email to this user. Now what's required is just a user email. Like we don't need a password to send an email to the user. And in the same way, if we get this user and now using another context where we're trying to ship some product or send a letter to him, that is yet the same user, but the requirements are very different. Now we need to know what's the address of the user so we can ship him something. So my point is, there is no global context of the user. There, is local, there are local requirements and different contexts require different things. And trying to, trying to press that in the global doesn't make sense and breaks easily. Right. And normally probably what happens is like we loosen those constraints. We just make most of the fields optional. Yeah. Every, every entity big enough will have all its fields optional. Right. right. <laughs> So yeah, if and if you make everything optional, what's the point, right? Right. Mm -hmm. It's like with the type systems where they are just any at one point. And one one if we think on GraphQL side, maybe maybe someone could argue that okay, so uh, why we can't specify like GraphQL solves this for the. Uh, API requests, let's say, right? Because it lets you specify the thing and the details inside of the thing. Why if in our functions we did something similar to that? And mm -hmm. you could think about some weird syntax that we put on your input declaration that says that. But if you are doing that, uh, it's already, uh, if you're, if, if we are going to this direction and we allow the user to specify the thing on details, uh, you can imagine that the keyword namespace is like that, is the type. And the, and the name of the keyword is the field. And if you just make a list of those, that's that's what spec does mm -hmm. when you uh, do S keys. That's why spec encourages that. So this kind of breaks this boundary of the entity. And when you see types, like types are kind of afraid to grow. When uh, mm -hmm. when I see the the reaction that I see people when I have myself when I look at a type that has 20, 30 fields is that ugh every time it goes too big, it starts to feel icky. And right. the reason for that is that the when the big types are there, the feeling the reaction feeling that I have is that okay, this type is complex. So any operation using it, I'll have to understand the whole type to understand the operation. I might have. Mm -hmm. And that's and I remember on Ruby the the pattern that people say like the God object that should be avoided. That was mm -hmm. just like that, right? You're, it's an object or a type, an entity that's growing too large, mm -hmm. and then like oh this is doing wrong. You need to take that out of control and break it up. That's that's what I see people feeling and doing. Is Patom somehow addressing this, or I'm I'm just so curious now. Where are we going with this? So. Oh yeah, we are we are getting there. Yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> you can cut this exact detail, but we are two bullet points away. <laughs> okay. And another problem with this table idea and entities is that they are closed systems. It's usually hard to extend a type or um, a type or an entity like that. They usually, you are a consumer. You put it out, and you should use this as is. And the web, uh, if you look at the web, the web understands this problem. The web was created for documents, the HTML documents, and we allow documents to point to any other document on the internet. So if you are, Google can reference direct pages from Wikipedia or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So my analogy here, because I think it's harder to get people to understand the extra detail, but maybe if we take things apart to get easier. So imagine if we didn't have paths on URLs, we only had domains, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Imagine how this word would be. And I, I want to tell you, like, I want to let you know, I want to let you go to, uh, to the Pink Floyd page on Wikipedia. So but because I don't have the path, I can't get you the direct link. What I tell you is like, Visit Wikipedia, and I send you the link to Wikipedia and say, and then on the search box, look for Pink Floyd. And look this way, because there might be some ambiguation, mm-hmm. right? And when, it, when I see these entities and the properties of the entities, that's how I feel that. It's like URLs without paths. Mm-hmm. You can specify the entity, like the domain, but you can never talk about the properties inside of it. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. Like yes. you can't re- you can't reference the username. You can reference the user, and then you can get the name. That's right. the like the jumping difference here. Right. And right, right. so mm-hmm. we might ask, how do we escape the matrix? How do mm-hmm. we get out of this? And I find inspiration of this uh, first in RDF and the semantic web because they were very aware of this problem from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's why in RDF, entities are URLs and properties are URLs. And there is never a context bound. You never say, oh, I am inside of a user. Like, this doesn't exist there. Mm-hmm. And Datomic, uh, sorry, Enclosure Spec also, also, also encourages you to do that. When Closure Spec doesn't allow you to define that, oh, I have a map type and this key will... will uh, in this context, this key means that type, right? You can't say like, yeah, I have a user that a name is that. No, spec says, no, you define the property globally and then you just cherry pick them. That's also because of thinking about this problem, thinking about making the properties directly accessible and not something that's bound to a specific context. Mm-hmm. And in Datomic, if you look at Datomic, it's another inspiration for that because Datomic has no uh, table barriers. In Datomic, we have the properties and any entity can have any properties. So these, to me, are inspirations and signs on how how we get out of that matrix system. Mm-hmm. And this is what Peton does for information processing. Peton is about getting these ideas of getting out of the matrix, talking about properties, and create a system that can process information based on that. So um, let's start start talking a, bit, a few things about how Peton works and how, how, do, how Peton addresses the issues we just described. 
So the first thing is that there is no type. So every every entity in Python is like a generic box, much like the atomic. It can have anything and everything. Okay. And using Python, I can express dependencies in terms of attributes directly. Uh, remember, just say like uh, here you you usually say that you require a type user for a logging. Mm-hmm. In Python, if you do a definition for a dependency thing, you can say exactly no. I require a username and a user password. And logging is not such a good example here because that's more an operation that causes something. So let's mm-hmm. talk about something a bit different, like computing a full name for a user. Okay. So if you would write, if you you would write a function to do that. Uh, instead of saying I require a user, you say I require the user first name and I require the user last name. And I provide the user full name. Note that the attributes are everywhere here on all the inputs and all the outputs. Uh, everything has to be named and labeled for this mm-hmm. to work. Right. So you said that in the atomic, you can have everything everywhere. There is no specific table where you put this there. But in Dynamic, we will also use sort of like keywordized keys. Uh, sorry, we would use um, namespace keywords. Yes, we have. We'd, we'd have to use yeah. that because of ambiguation issue. Mm-hmm. When when we are in types, we 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 are defined names that are limited to a specific context of that type. So mm-hmm. the collisions you have to think about there is just the ones from the own type itself and maybe some other constructs like interfaces. But it's a small word. When, but when we open this up and we say that every property is global, now we need to think more like the web where every property needs a unique name like, like URLs right. for documents. Right. So in Python, there is this entity box, that generic box, and everything in Python is about attributes. When we, when uh, when you look at a, a Python API or a Python output, uh, let's contrast this with REST and GraphQL. In REST, if you look for a documentation on a REST API, you're gonna see endpoints, mm-hmm. and the documentation is gonna tell you what endpoint has inside, if it's a good one. And so the primary building block are the endpoints. In GraphQL, the documentation and uh, and the modeling talks about types primarily. You always have a type, and then you know what's inside of the type, what type can access to you. So in GraphQL, what you can ask at a given point of the query depends on the type. The GraphQL will ask the type and what interfaces it has, and that will get you what's what's available there. Mm-hmm. In Python, there is no types or endpoints. It's all about the attributes. If you were to see a documentation of a Python API, it would look like just a list of a bunch of attributes. And when you visit an attribute, the, the documentation could will tell you how this attribute relates to the other attributes in the system. So it's, it's important to realize that because that's very different from every what people are used. And again, looks like the datomic schema in a sense. Okay, so let's repeat this since this is important. Yeah. 
So in Python, uh, the definitions, we, you define things in Python in terms of attributes. To compare that, in REST, when you create, when I create uh, the primary building block and what you see on REST documentations is the endpoints, because that's how you access, that's what you refer. And the endpoints will have stuff inside and that's gonna be described on their documentation. On GraphQL, they will tell you about the types and the documentation or the tooling of GraphQL will tell you, uh, yeah, we have these types and for each type, it can tell you what you have available inside of that type, which would be a combination of the type itself plus its interfaces. Mm -hmm. But on Python, we don't have types and we don't have endpoints either. What you have is just attributes right. and attributes that relate to each other. So a documentation of Python or tools like Python Viz that we can dis discuss later with the Index Explorer, they would what they would tell you is like, these are all the attributes that this system has. And if you want to know more about the attribute, you're going to be able to figure out what attributes are related to that attribute. Mm -hmm. For example, we could imagine the relationship between the customer ID and the customer name. Um, the relationship here is that a customer ID can provide you a customer name by doing a lookup on the database. And Python works primarily on top of this abstraction. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. The, yeah, we, I think it will be clarified when you get more real examples. Right. So there is no more, like as you mentioned, the entity, and there is no certain like properties inside this entity. It's just entities. I'm just saying I want this, 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 and that. Yeah, and it's atom. Yeah, we can call it context-free attributes because okay. the, the context-free in the sense they are not bound to a specific entity. They are always mm -hmm. they are all global. Right. And in GraphQL, you you use you use write a schema to define what's there and know this other system. In Python, there is no schema in that sense. What you do in Python is you declare you declare things that are called resolvers, okay. and the the Python resolvers is like an annotated function. It looks like a defend, but has an extra map to add meta information. And for the for the parts we are discussing here, the most important meta information is the input and output. There is what do I need to run this resolver, and what this resolver. And remember that in terms of attributes, what attributes do I need to run the resolver? And what attributes are going to be provided by the output of this resolver? Mm -hmm. to... And the, resol the resolvers always return a map, right? Yeah, they always take a map input and they always uh, respond with a map output. This way, we force the system to always be labeling the information. And this is an important mm -hmm. part of it. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so you would, as you said, it has a signature as a defn, so you would have def resolver, then you have your vector for arguments. I have the, then, the name first, the symbol, the symbol for the name, like we do yes, for the function name. Right. Yes, <laughs> then you would have the vector, and then there will be a first map, which will describe what your input and then what are your outputs, and then you would be returning the map. Yeah, exactly. And uh, for any you know, uh, uh, listener, you can check the Python docs. I think it will be easier to illustrate if you want to see what sure. it looks like. 
yeah we can definitely reference the docs in the show notes and yeah yeah mm-hmm. And to illustrate that a bit more, uh, let's think about what what would be a resolver in Python to get a Spotify track like we did before. And we would write a resolver and we would say that it requires a Spotify track ID and it mm-hmm. provides a Spotify track title, duration, artist, album, whatever. When, mm-hmm. when wrapping in points, we usually, we usually just spit everything on Python. The reason being, well, you already paid the price to load off all of that. So just make everything available. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we have to go all the way through the client debt, but this is cached internal, internally on Python. So if other parts of the processing need that data and we already downloaded, it can pull from cache. I see. Mm-hmm. So when you create these resolvers, Python uses that metadata of input and output to generate an index. And this is what is the Python schema. You see, um, in contrast with GraphQL that you define your schema first and then you go implement those, in Python you define the resolvers directly and the schema is kind of built up from the resolvers. So another interesting part about Python, and that's something I only I only I only really realized these days when I was thinking about how to explain Python in this podcast, mm-hmm. is that Python has a very distinct concept of identity. And it's even different from Datomic and RDF. Although the, the modeling of Python is close to those, if the identity is very different. Let's let's think about it for a bit. What mm-hmm. what is identity in Datomic? Um, identity in Datomic is usually the DBID, right? Every entity gets gets a DBID, mm-hmm. and you aso- you associate facts, you instate facts about that entity of that ID, and you put a value mm-hmm. on it. An RDF follows a similar approach. The identity would be a URL of some sorts, and then you assert facts and information about their identity, right? So in both cases, what defines what an entity can can do and be is it's, it's like on its internal modeling, what it has stored on the database. Right. But Python is very different because in Python, if we try, if we try to ask that question on Python of, okay, what attributes can I get for X? X is just data as well. So the data itself is the identity on Python, is the keys that you have on a map. To illustrate that, let's think again about our Spotify case. If we want to ask uh, Python for a Spotify track duration, you have to provide Python two things. One is the list of the attributes you want, in this case, the Spotify track title, but also you have to specify what data do you have? Like what's your what's your input? And the input is always a map with other attributes. So you would provide, you would say that I have, okay, I have this Spotify track ID and I need a Spotify track duration. And then you ask that for Petum. What Petum will do is we'll start from the property you want and gonna look in that schema index that we talked about before. <laughs> and when it looks that, it's gonna look for the Spotify track duration property to 
to try to figure, okay, how can I get this data that the user wants? Mm-hmm. And in that index, if it finds that duration, it's going to find because we created, it's going to say, okay, what do I need to get the duration? And then the index is going to tell Patton, oh, yes, I can get you that if you provide me a Spotify track ID. And because in our current data, we have that, it knows, okay, so I can call this resolver function. And then after that, I should have the data that the user asks. It's saying I can return it to it. Um, this concept is very different from the others for a reason. Uh, one reason that makes this very different is that in this case, we have the ability to merge multiple different entities in a single context. Let's let's explain that a bit more. Yeah, when you say context, you mean in a in a single like return yeah. value or yeah, in a single entity. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. sibling sibling attributes. You can have right. you can have multiple entities that you would consider entity in other cases merge in a single one. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the easiest the easiest way to see that is just imagine two completely distinct entities. Let's say we're talking about Spotify tracks, but let's also talk about customer ID, like uh, Acme customer ID to put a name on the company. If you start with the initial context of of Acme customer ID one two three and also Spotify tech ID four five six, and you go to Patton and make a query, you can ask both things about the Spotify track and things about the customer ID about the customer. You can ask the customer name and the Spotify track name. Although they are not related, your your initial data makes them related in in a, in a way. Okay? And uh, this, may, this may seem like a, a very useless feature if you're not used to play with that. And... Uh, but uh, one case that it gets more clear and more common is when you have two-one relationships. And using Spotify again, we're gonna piggyback on this a lot. We in Spotify we have that audio analysis. We have audio analysis and we have audio features, and these <laughs> are all data related to the audio. And the my question would be, like, why why you don't have a single audio that has all of that? And then you mm-hmm. got back to the matrix world problem. Is because those required and optionals, and like people, people want to be able to reason about the type. And if the type grows too much, it gets too hard to reason about it. Mm. And it's too bloated also to get the whole information there. Yeah, yeah. And the initial gut feeling when you're thinking about this property only property word is that this would be even worse, right? Because now now we now we have only one type. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like getting this problem to the worst possible <laughs> path. Right. But but in practice it's not like that. It doesn't feel like that. Because the bloatness comes from not exactly knowing how how the things inside of that type are related. But when you are on the attributes you don't. You are never trying to make sense of every property together. You are always going to that a specific attribute and seeing what um, what's the blast radius of it, what it connects to, and that's what the context that you need to learn about that you need to lead from. Mm-hmm. So in Python, you could, um, in, if you are modeling that Spotify stuff on Python, 
the audio track, the audio track, the audio analysis, and the audio features, they could all live together in the same layer. And that, that's something that makes sense. Makes sense right. that like you could start from a track ID and without navigating to a separated entity, you could ask for what's the tone of this music, what are the segments and bars and beats, because that's information right, so. Spotify provides. Mm -hmm. So as in REST, I would have to ask first for this track, then I would just get the ID. When I get the ID, I ask for this additional information on another endpoint, and then continue the cycle as long as I have all of the information. When in Patom, I will be just cherry picking them and saying, I want this, 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 and that. And the resolver, as we were talking about, will figure out how to get this information. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, just one thing about the Spotify API itself. Is that yeah. if you just want the analysis track and you have the track ID, you you could go straight from that. Yeah. Which is a bit different when you think about the GraphQL on the entry points. Because uh that's not a requirement of GraphQL, it's just something I see I see commonly commonly implemented. Is that if you navigate to a track in a GraphQL API, let's say track by ID, and you pass a track ID. And inside of that, you ask for some track analysis data. The thing is, because of the way resolvers are implemented in GraphQL, when you navigate to the track, there is a good chance that that's triggering the request to fetch the track, even if you don't need it. But that's just an implementation detail, not, uh, not, not mm -hmm. something you have to do it. You, you can fix that problem in GraphQL. Just, it's just that people end up doing this because it's more convenient. Right. So again, that thing that you just said, it breaks the entity boundaries. And this, and this feature of Patton about doing this, um, making it easy to merge different entities, and that's because of the fully qualified attributes and things like that, is that we break the entity boundary. And that makes connecting, connecting distributed systems much easier. Because now imagine if you're creating your own, our own system that links to Spotify information. We could have in our system something like customer acme.customer slash favorite Spotify track ID. Mm -hmm. And from that, if we consider that a main Spotify ID on the same layer that we are on our user, it could ask customer name and the Spotify track name at the same place. And it makes sense if, if in your system that relationship makes sense. So, Another thing that's cool about the, this way of pattern processing is that because properties are related in this way, this allows recursive, recursive traversing. Oh, and what I mean by that is that imagine if we're trying to provide that, um, uh, that thing that I just said about the user having a favorite track and we want to ask things about that Spotify track on that user. Mm -hmm. What you could write is that, imagine you already have the resolver for the Spotify track, and that resolver says, I can get a Spotify track ID, and I can get you the track data. Mm -hmm. And you have another resolver that says for you, from your customer ID, I can get a lot of customer data, and included in that is the favorite Spotify track. Right now, these two graphs of attributes, they are disconnected from each other, right? Because there is nothing plugging them. So, 
but you can create another resolver, and that's something I'll call alias resolver. That's like a rename. It's you telling to Python that one property name can be converted to the other. And in practice, this is just a resolver that takes an input with a name and outputs the same value with another name. So we can create an alias that says you can convert customer favorite track to Spotify track ID. Are you mm -hmm. still with me on this? Yes, yes. I'm <laughs> listening, yes. Okay. So now that we have connected those graphs, now we can go to Petal and say like, oh, I have this customer ID here and I want to know the Spotify track title of it. And because of the index, Patton can see, okay, he wants the uh, Spotify track name. Do I know how to get that? And it looks in the index. The index says, yes, you know. And But to do that, you need a Spotify track ID. So I look at my pattern looks at the available data. And that data contains Spotify track ID. And no, it doesn't. It only contains a customer ID. OK. And then it goes back to the index and asks the question, can I get a, is there a way for me to find the Spotify track ID? And then the index is going to say yes, because it's going to find that alias we just mentioned that says, if you have a customer favorite track, you can convert that in a Spotify track ID. Mm -hmm. And I look again in my data. Do I have the customer favorite favorite track? And again, no. But how do I get that? And you look at the index again. It says, yes, you can get that with the customer ID. And that's one you have. So now Patton found a path on your graph to go from the data you need you, you have to the data you need. So now Patton can automatically go and cause all these resolvers and then get you the final data. I guess we are getting to the point. So how do I actually use it and how we can understand it a bit? So, yeah. Yeah. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshare.com. That's J-A-C-E-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.